Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. My name is Sam Forniker. I'm your host. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Jason Baxter. Um, Jason is Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College and has worked in a range of areas, um, including on subjects like Dante's Divine Comedy, the tradition of Christian mystical theology, the relevance of the humanities in a technological age, and most recently, uh, the great scholar of uh, medieval and Renaissance English literature, the apologist, the author, the general Christian wise guy, uh, C.S. Lewis. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, I'm delighted to be here. Well, so Jason, as we get started, I'd love, if I can put it this way, to have a temple of doom moment. <laughs> and I'd love to ask you to expose your heart. Um, you've written on this range of subjects, which happen to be near and dear to my own. Um, and clearly, I think you see these various writers and subjects that you've been tackling over the last several years as interconnected. So I'd love to ask, what is it that brings figures as diverse as Dionysius the Areopagite, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Dante and Lewis together in your mind. What what's the underlying interest that's that's driven your research uh, in these areas and these people? I think that is a question that would have made Lewis Lewis's heart warm. Hmm. I think he would have been very proud of that question. He talks about that in Surprised by Joy that you can walk into a scholar's library, a sort of, you know, vast library that he's collected over a couple of, you know, a couple of decades. And he has no idea why he bought this book and, you know, <laughs> in Little Rock, Arkansas, and that book in Chicago, Illinois, and, you know, this set in Oxford, England. And it just, you know, grabbed him because they seemed exciting. But Lewis was insistent that in some sense, there must have be a story there. There must be a unity which drove him to every single one of those books but that he probably doesn't know himself. And that in some sense, his own life's mission, his own revelation of his secret name, right? As George MacDonald would put it, mm. right? Will be part of that kind of understanding the narrative of his life. So I guess that's an easy way of saying, I have no idea, um, but that's not a very good, <laughs> that's not a very satisfying answer. So I'll just try to take a, a, a stab in the dark at it. Um, I've been attracted to the, the medieval world for a long time, I think, as soon as I began to understand what it was doing, hmm. um, as soon as I began to understand how, as you and I were talking just before this show, uh, about how in the medieval world, as I sometimes jokingly put it, physics is a subset of theology. Hmm. That in some sense, there's, um, there's a fullness, there's an abundance of being uh, Lewis says that the isthmus which connects us to the, the realm of full being is mythology, by which he means that our rationality can only, can only sift through a little bit of what we're constantly immersed in, and that part of the modern condition, which he calls the evil enchantment of modernity, is having been conditioned to ignore this overplus and maybe even presence of, of spiritual matters because they don't pass the test of our logical empiricism, that is, of our kind of um, deeply embedded empirical scientific mentality, hmm. what Deborah what Deborah Lupton calls the datification of the self. Hmm. 
in which what we believe is truest about ourselves are these sort of quantifiable empirical measurements, Mm -hmm. even while we're being in the presence of these other spiritual realities. Well, if Lewis is right, then in some sense, it's even hard for us to believe in spiritual presences. And again, he does this in a fun joking way in in screw tape letters, doesn't he? Right. Mm. Um, You know, but if he's right about that, part of the evil enchantment is that it's hard for us to acknowledge these presences even when they are present to us, we think of ourselves as machines, as sort of, you know, technological um, instruments who use instruments. And so I think the Middle Ages presents this great alternative. And so a lot of my work, I think, has been sort of removing obstacles for myself, for my readers, for my students, into taking this seriously. Mm. Now, ultimately, you and I were also talking about Owen Barfield. Mm. Um, I don't think you can just... I don't think you can go back. Barfield <laughs> says you can't go back. You can only go through. <laughs> and so ultimately, I don't, I don't think, and then Taylor, Taylor in a secular age also describes the, the temptation of modern Christians to try to reconstitute Christendom, yeah. which he thinks is a mistake, right? He thinks that we need to own our modernity and sort of, yeah, go through, not back. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably true. Um, but I feel like my, my projects sort of hitherto for have been, ones of removing obstacles to understanding. And then if I can create affection and admiration for these old medieval projects in Lewis, in Dante, in Christian mysticism, um, then I feel like we'll be in a position to, to then have this more difficult, more exciting, um, more open-ended question of, okay, given that it was attractive, what of it is salvageable? Mm. And then the real question, the real inquiry, the real the real sort of moment of, uh, of not just being a historical scholar, but being engaged in this tremendous tradition, that's when it begins. There was a, an essay, maybe it's in The Discarded Image, where, where Lewis says that the difference between a secular person and a, and a pagan of old, do you know this passage, is it, it's the difference between um, the divorced person and the virgin. You know, one person one person is being prepared for something the other person has said no to, and in a sense has been inoculated against something. And he said, I wonder if um, we shall not have to convert people to genuine paganism before we convert them to the gospel, something along those lines. Um, uh, so that is a line from Lewis that has stuck with me for a long time as I've thought about the way that the church ought to engage with you know, in our in our contemporary secular age, and what Lewis has to offer us. So, I, I'd love to. I've said it. I'd love to just put a pin in it. And maybe we can um, return to that towards towards the end. But in in the meantime, um, I'd love to introduce people to the Lewis that that you know, um, because I, for many listeners, I think it's not going to be the Lewis, your Lewis, uh, in this marvelous book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. Um, I'm mindful that you're presenting a Lewis many people might not have met before. So can you introduce us to the medieval C.S. Lewis? Yes, yes. And I think uh, I, I think this might be the the Lewis that people would be intimidated of. Um, this is the you know this is the Mount Everest Lewis, right? This is the, the scholar who's not translating his his quotations from from Greek and Latin and Occitan and Italian, right? And in the book, I put it this way: even for the editors of Christian Century in the 1960s, who summed up Lewis as a novelist, essay, and theologian. It was easy to forget that the man who had become a celebrity Christian 
had an ardent love for studying the technical features of medieval language, mm. like sound laws that regulate vowel changes, manuscript trans transmission, old books of science, and medieval poetic form. To many of Lewis's readers, it might seem absurd and maybe even irresponsible and escapist to devote the whole of one's life to the study of dead languages, Anglo-Saxon, Old Norse, Provençal, Medieval Italian, or Latin, reconstructing the details of ancient bestiaries, allegorical readings of the spiritual meaning of animals. Sure, studying New Testament Greek might be useful, but what about trying to understand the subtleties of medieval debates, say, on the exact nature of moon spots, as Dante does in Paradiso too? <laughs> That's Lewis's day job, hmm. right? And it, I, I, it seems to me that when, when you just mention that, lovers of Lewis think, wow, uh, well, he must have been successful despite his day job. And the argument of this book is actually, no, he was successful as a writer of apologetics and as fiction because of his day job. And that the, his medieval learning, particularly, we'll say, Boethius and Dante, but also Augustine, um, and to a certain extent, what he considered the greatest artwork of the Middle Ages, surprise, surprise, their conception of the cosmos, right? Their science was in some sense for him like a summa or like the comedy or like a cathedral. Mm. Um, the, all that stuff is closer to the surface or we could just put it the other way around, just beneath the surface in ways that are really surprising. And when you notice it, then you can notice that as I say, that Lewis is becoming the new Boethius or the British Boethius, doing something like what the sixth century, so-called last of the Romans and first of the medievals, was trying to do, preparing for his own eminent age of cultural collapse. Parenthetically, I think it was maybe Ed Fazer who was saying, who was questioning a certain approach to apologetics, where you said, it, basically the leapfrog to the resurrection approach, let's call it that. <laughs> where you know, um, And I'm all for leapfrogging for the resurrection in one sense, but there's another sense in which actually there's a whole foundation of just um, the knowledge of God, relationship with him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, that that undergirds all of this stuff. So so apologetics say they don't just come, they don't pop up out of the ether. You know, they, right. they've got legs um, of this kind of core Christian doctrine, core convictions of the faith and the experience of the God to whom the Christian faith testifies doctrinally in prayer and worship. So it's what, I mean, it's what you were saying earlier, just, um, you know, talking about Lewis's own, own thoughts that I think we're going to have to make them good pagans first. Hmm. In other words, I mean, I've said I've said more than once that I think, um, you know, particularly within what I call a trending culture in which it seems that the sort of the, the forces of, of social media and the corporate philanthropists who control them for um, whatever reasons, we don't have to go into that today, maybe just pure generosity. But in any case, the, the upshot is that in a democratic, you know, social media controlled space, we're really allowed to have one moral opinion, one moral campaign, one moral quest, one moral, you know, social movement per year. Mm. And we're told repeatedly what it is and through our social media, through the advertisements on YouTube videos, such that even Luddites uh, can hardly avoid it. Mm. Um, we're allowed one opinion per year. And I think that, and I think the questionable, obviously the questionable aspect of that is, 
does a year give you enough time to get to the roots of a uh, of, of something which is spiritually cancerous? Hmm. Um, but even more concerning, and Alan Jacobs is really smart in this, and Lewis was really worried about this. What if the world is polyphonic, right? Hmm. What if the world is more like a Bach fugue than it is like, a, a, you know, a Rihanna, a Rihanna, you know, song with this sort of, it's, it's repetitive melodic cells. Mm. In other words, what if there are not one or two or even three correct opinions, which we work on at a time, but the reality is a successful, full flourishing human life is actually 17 virtues, or it might even get complicated, 27 virtues, right? Dare, dare we say more like the music of the Ainur than the song of Melkor? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Or my my favorite allusion, and I, I, I think I've quote, referred to this in every single one of my books, is Thomas Tallis's Spem and Allium, mm. right? The 40-part the motet. Um, which um, was, you know, meant to be sung in these eight choirs of five mm. and in the round such that these kinds of waves of sound, you know, the original 17th century surround sound, right, are hitting you from all these types of directions. And at its height, there are 40 separate individual melodic lines. What if virtue is like that? Mm. In which case, um, we can't cancel our ancestors because they might have had one, two, three, heck, maybe even four virtues, which have completely disappeared off our radar, or an awareness to certain types of vices, which are completely enervating our society, which they all could have smelled immediately, but we've lost the sensitivity to. Um, and then we should probably, even to a certain extent, envy our um, those who come after us not like we ordinarily do. I, you know, I find that we, when we do envy our grandchildren's grandchildren, it's because we think of what amazing technological devices they'll have or how nanotechnology will enable them to live to 180 or how there will be flying cars. But what if in, in the fullness of time, one or two other virtues, um, which we have a hard time even conceiving of, will be developed by them? Mm. So I think there's something kind of beautiful about this, that in a certain sense, the the church needs the fullness of the church. Mm. Um, that is not at any sort of a horizontal moment, but also a kind of a, a vertical moment as well, sort of chronologically through time, that our ancestors were really much better at some things than we are. Um, I want to take a shot at maybe chastity. <laughs> For us, that's an, it's an exclusively negative virtue. It's not doing something. For mm -hmm. them, it was actually a positive virtue. They, they, we, you know, we, we watch movies called, you know, 40 year old virgin and, and mock people who are right. Who, who take those sort of things seriously. Whereas our, I think our, our ancestors couldn't have even understood our disdain for that. Mm. I think you could probably go on. I mean, well beyond the sort of chastity, but the sort of sensitivity toward the poor, the sort of, um, the sort of concern about finicky eating when, um, when people are hungry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. We could keep going. But I think we've got some things that, you know, they would have been shocked by, some legitimately good things. So to a certain extent, I think, I think you know, every sort of spiritual age might have its own virtues, its own spiritual mission, its own thing, which it really is better than any other generation had. Mm -hmm. And then the fullness of time, if we make it, right? If the fullness of time, we'll marvel at each other for what they possessed and I lacked and vice versa. And I think Lewis, 
Lewis, this is getting back around to Lewis. I think this is sort of Lewis's conception of time. This Mm. is why Lewis can have a long Middle Ages, as I call it, which goes something like from like (laughs) Babylonian Gilgamesh to Wordsworth, right? (laughs) The 4,000 year Middle Ages. Mm. And it's, 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 it's why we need each other. And it's why, um, and yeah, it's why we have to do medieval studies because they probably knew things and could smell things and hear things which have dropped off our, our kind of spiritual radar. So the picture that I have of this, actually, so you mentioned Talis's, Thomas Tallis's Spim and Allium. I, I went to see uh, a choir do this at Trinity College in Cambridge. Uh, to I did sing, too. We to might have been Talis. at the same time. Was it raining cats and dogs the day that you were there? I'm just going to go ahead and say yes. Uh, well, there we go. Maybe we were. It was Cambridge, of course. <laughs> it was, this, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but one of the one of the singers in the let's let's say it was 40 people. One of the singers, um, she had she just had a t- poor thing, just stuffy nose, scratchy throat. You know, this is well before COVID, um, and um, and she she just couldn't she couldn't hit the the notes. And I remember I remember just thinking, oh, bless you, you know. You know, poor thing. But the the corresponding feeling was, wow, the way that the other thirty nine or however many lifted her up and created this tapestry and fabric of sound. I mean, it's a perfect picture of what you're talking about, actually. I think with these, yeah, it's um, like a, a concrete metaphor, the cloud of witnesses. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so 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 let's 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 do this. A, a minute ago, you mentioned that idea of the long Middle Ages. Um, and, and this is a thing that might not be obvious to people. People think Middle Ages may be the sack of Rome to 1450 or 1500 or something. You, you though, you operate with this idea of the long Middle Ages, um, which I think is really helpful, but, you know, people might find that novel. So introduce us to that. What's this period of the long Middle Ages? Did Lewis speak this way or did he think this way? Help us out. Yeah, he certainly did. Um, and it's something that I do indeed um, borrow from him. Um, I actually really like this section in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in part because I had an anonymous uh, reviewer, um, may he or she be blessed forever, who was extremely critical of the book. Mm-hmm. And I thought really mean um, <laughs> and really British. <laughs> and, um, and, and one of the critiques was Baxter is really vague and fuzzy about the periodization of the middle ages. And so I had a lot of fun in kind of actually dealing with this um, because Lewis himself, I think also had this vague and fuzzy notion of the middle ages. Well, that's not entirely fair. Um, But as I say in the book, Lewis had no problem citing ancient Aristotle and Athenian Plato, not to mention Wordsworth to help clarify the medieval model. In other words, it was habitual for him to put ancients in dialogue with Christians and medieval Christians in dialogue with romantics, despite the intervening millennia, in a way that recalled Dante's own blending of various eras. See his Inferno 1, where the pilgrim meets the ancient poet Virgil. Mm. So if if your listeners want to go into this, reading Lewis's 1954 inaugural dress when he took a chair that was made for him in Cambridge, when Cambridge bought him off of Oxford, or at least created an academic position, which he felt was desperately needed. Hmm. He gave this wonderful inaugural address, as the tradition is in in these ancient universities. It's got a Latin title, De Descriptione Temporum, right? Or something like, upon the drawing up of dividing lines in history. Hmm. 
And Lewis says something really cool in that. He says, I wish I could just be like Virginia Woolf and write a plotless, <laughs> you know, characterless novel of just sort of like flowing sounds of language, like Joyce's Finnegan's Wake or something like that. I wish mm-hmm. I could do that because I think that's probably more accurate to what history actually is. Mm-hmm. But we got to use these historical periods. So... If the whole point of this chair is that there isn't a strict dividing line between the so-called dark ages, because Lewis says we're beyond that now, it's funny, not in pop culture, just, you know, just hearing it today, but we still believe in dark ages, but scholars are done with the concept of dark ages, right? There's no dividing line between middle ages and the Renaissance. Well, where is it? And he considers various alternatives. And he ultimately, in a way which will, uh, your reader, your listeners who have read that hideous strength will recognize this. He says, well, really, it's between, it's kind of around late, you know, 18, 1800s, mm. when we didn't just start producing machines, but machines became, machines became part of our lives. Mm. Uh, the Italian futurist, only half jokingly because they're insane, said, we're looking forward to an age in which we drink gasoline because we can be more like our brothers, the machines, wow. right? But wow. if that sort of mentality, right, of these these things which once upon a time were instruments hmm. for doing fundamentally human activities of contemplation and 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 ratiocination and 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 intuition all of a sudden we're now becoming as as Thoreau put it the tools of our tools hmm. and that increasingly our lives our human capacities are being sort of you know pulled into this huge machine of the economy right hmm. whereas the first question at least in America we ask each other um, to sort of feel each other out is, so what do you do? Um, which is a veiled way of saying, to what extent do you contribute to the GDP so I can know your social rank, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our worth, our value is measured in these kinds of machine-like categories of productivity. Yeah. Lewis was aware of that. And so I think for Lewis, at some point in the late 1800s, um, basically within his own lifetime, the psychological landscape of what it felt like to be a human had been changed by our expectation and collaboration cooperation with machines, instrument, and technologies so much, he thought, that it made us, us, we mean, you know, 1950s, mm-hmm. tool-using materialist moderns, it made us less like Jane Austen, mm who's writing in the early 1800s, separation of a century, then Jane Austen was like the Egyptian pharaohs. That's the long middle ages. Mm. That, um, and, you know, you could, (laughs) I want to say you could write a whole book about this and that, wait a minute. Um, (laughs) Right. I mean, to, to go ahead and just sort of play out all the implications, but Lewis gives one little, one little interesting one in that, in that lecture. He says, how we think about the purposes of government. Hmm. Modernity thinks that government is uh, governmentment. He jokingly uses the term governmentment. That in the sort of propagandistic state, right? Mm -hmm. We need the government to poke us and to prod us and to find new places that need to be um, like the economy needs to be ramped up here, and this problem needs to be tapped down there. And there's always campaigns and billboards and radio slots and YouTube videos and so forth. We're always being pushed and galvanized. In other words, like we're a bunch of circuitry in a machine, right? Mm-hmm. Or in a, in a processor. In the past, Lewis points out, you would expect incorruption from your leaders. Whereas now we're willing to overlook the corruption 
depending if he's on our side, he or she's on our side, right? As long as they galvanize us with enough electrical volts to do that right thing. In the past, you want someone who's whole, who's integrated, who's just, who has clemency, but someone who keeps things still and calm and peaceful and quiet. Now, in that particular passage, Lewis doesn't pass judgments about which one of these paradigms are true. But he does say everything has changed so much so that it's hard for us to even recognize what virtues our ancestors might have possessed. Mm. So I guess to a certain extent, both Lewis and then in turn my, my book about this medieval aspect of Lewis is trying to dig those things up, trying to make them less difficult to digest so at least a more interesting dialogue can begin. It's the, it's this ability, I think, what you're trying to foster of seeing things from, as Lewis wanted to, you know, from behind medieval eyes, to breathe the air medievals breathed. So yes. two, two of my favorite Lewis essays, um, the ones I return to again and again, they're both in his studies in medieval and Renaissance literature. The first is on Dante's similes, um, yes. to which we'll come back. And Underappreciated. Egg, yes. Boring, um, but underappreciated. <laughs> uh, but the second one is one that you know very well. It's entitled Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages. It's Lewis's distillation of the medieval uh, worldview, or at least the first one that I came across. Um, can you, Jason, can you lead us on an orientation through Lewis's understanding of that medieval um, worldview? And then if I could just maybe add one more little thought on that. You know, at the end of the day, Lewis says, there's only one problem with the worldview, um, and that is, well, uh, it's not uh, true. <laughs> uh, so, um, so maybe after you get us oriented to what the medieval worldview was, can you explain why, if it wasn't true or, you know, scientifically accurate, as it were, naturalistically accurate, why Lewis thought it was so significant? Is it just arcana? Is it just esotericism? Or is there actually something here that, that we, and I, and I mean we, I mean people in the pew, Christians in the pew, um, or those who are serving them in holy orders uh, or in, in a lay leadership position, we, we really ought to pay attention to. Well, I call that chapter in which I spend the most time trying to dive into this and trying to tackle some of Lewis's more difficult sources to suggest this very question. I call it the lost cathedral. Hmm. And I suppose you could say, you could just boil it down to a sentence the, the medieval image described in the essay you mentioned and then at length in his discarded image, the, the book-length treatment of it. The world felt like a cathedral. Um, and I say standing in a medieval cathedral gives you a kind of X-ray vision of the world. Meaning is everywhere, full and rich. The material world has been gathered to a saturation point. In a cathedral, the spiritual world feels like it's leaking in and our response to it is to want to soar up and through and out. Simply look up any of the black and white photographs of Salisbury Cathedral, and you'll see what I mean. Mm. I think, it, it, you know, for your for your listeners, well, I suppose, and from um, if they're good good Southerners in Charleston, they have lots of examples of lovely um, lovely architecture. Um, but I mean, particularly these old world English cathedrals, which Lewis is constantly referring to in his writing. Mm. You know what that feels like? Then that provides a basic sort of psychological model, Lewis suggests, for understanding how our ancestors felt about the very natural world. 
Mm. And that, and that, like the transformation of the, our expectations of government, is another one of those huge things that puts us on either side of the Great Divide. Now, this, they thought that, as we said, physics is a subset of theology, that the world was animated by its very natural operations. Boethius says that time is an imitation of eternity. The very natural operations of time and space were somehow, some way, a translation, a transliteration, a transposition, as Lewis likes to say, a gigantic symphony. I, I, as you, you'll remember, Sam, I refer to Mahler, I think, at least three or four times. I was listening to Mahler as I was writing most, like many of these passages, right? Imagine trying to take a 400 um, instrument Mahler symphony and to transliterate it or transpose it into a piano piece before the age of electronic recording. Mm. If you know the Mahler symphony, then you'll understand the piano piece. Um, but in some sense, the piano piece, to the extent that it can, is gesturing at the kettle drum and the floats and the and the string sections and the you know the crescendos. It's doing the best it can in its lower level uh, language to contain that that rich higher level capacity. Mm. That's what the whole natural world felt like, Lewis says, that its very movement within time and space was literally a kind of singing, a kind of intellectual symphony, which we were trying to recover the capacity to hear, Hmm. as opposed to a modern approach to it, in which we tend to think of it as inert lumps of atoms waiting to be energized by external forces and undergo chemical and physical reactions. Mm -hmm. We live in a dead world, a machine which is either moving because someone has previously pushed it or it's waiting to move. And which means that for us, the world can be stripped down to atoms, stripped down to electrons, and then rebuilt We can rebuild our bodies. We can rebuild our brains. We can rebuild our spaces. We can bulldoze, you know, uh, whatever we want to create whatever we want. For us, it's just a huge blank set of empty, useless, pointless matter until we've shaped it. Whereas for our ancestors, it felt sort of pulsating of life. In other words, I guess you could say it's a machine versus an icon. Hmm. I think even just doing that description already begins to hint at why, why you would want to recover in detail that that vision of, of the world. But yes, Lewis does take up that um, that problem. Okay, so let me. Yeah. Can I, Exploded can I, science. What's it good for? Yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah. Let me. So let me interject because I re- I remember in the, uh, in that essay that Lewis writes. Um, at one point, he talks about. He talks about, I think he's speaking about Aristotle in particular. And he says, look, he says, okay, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. He says, look, here's the problem. Um, on this way of thinking, uh, and so he's pointing out, you know, a, a difficulty with the model for which he's advocating. He says, on, on this way of thinking, like with Aristotle, it's, the, it's the, the cosmos which is getting caught up to, you know, God or the, the prime mover what." Whatever, you know, the top of the food chain, as it were, uh, because of its attraction to him. Uh, but, and again, he doesn't put it this way, but the dynamic of the love of God for the cosmos, the downward momentum, isn't quite so present. Now, am I, I guess, question A, am I remembering that properly? Um, question B, does that mean that Lewis has got a major theological problem with this whole model, or does it mean that Lewis is 
tweaking it and moving forward as you were speaking earlier? And if so, how, how does that work? Yeah, I think Lewis thought there probably was going, there was more compatibility between uh, modern science and medieval science, by which he meant he was, you know, a follower of uh, contemporary trends in science in the early 20th century and really excited, like his buddy Owen Barfield was, was really excited about where all this stuff might go. Mm-hmm. And I think we're actually beginning to see, um, well, if, if in the early 20th century, you know, at the elite level, they were seeing cracks in the so-called Newtonian paradigm. Now I think we're actually beginning to see what happens when that slowly begins to pervade a popular mindset, right? Like mm-hmm. things like emergence and, and the, all the excitement, but I think sometimes ill thought out um, attempts to say, what does quantum physics mean for your business model or yeah. for <laughs> your health, right? Or, but I think we're, those are interesting gestures in which we're seeing that sort of stuff kind of like leak down into popular imagination. We're finally beginning to replace the Newtonian paradigm. But so anyway, I think, so the whole, the whole thing hinges, hinges on Lewis's use of the word model, hmm. right? This scientific word of modeling that you actually can't construct a perfect experiment, which doesn't mess with what you're trying to view to some extent. You have to model it. It has to be idealized to a certain extent. I mean, everyone remembers those sort of like wheels rolling down frictionless, uh, right, frictionless planes in, in high school. That's modeling. But at a bigger level, right, we, um, you know, there's this all kinds of really interesting theoretical discussions, which I, I don't know all that well. But about to what extent can you get beyond modeling? And seemingly the answer emerging is you can't. There's something fundamentally elusive about the nature of reality and that we can only take snapshots from different angles. But even our scientific knowledge is always, to a certain extent, stabs in the dark, right? And we can do a lot of stabs, right? And we can get a lot of interesting kind of multi-perspectival information. But that thing itself, that elusiveness is still receding a little bit from us. Hmm. So two things. One, isn't it interesting? That's exactly what the medievals say about the nature of the world, right? Yeah. That it itself is constantly gesturing and trying to present this elusive spiritual reality behind it, underneath it, to the extent it can. Mm. They got to modeling before us by a thousand years, right? So let's just at least pay them a little bit of respect, right? <laughs> you know, Alan of Lille sounds like an early 20th century physicist, like Niels Bohr or something like that. So let's at least just, you know, stop to ponder that, says, you know, says Lewis. Mm. But secondly, um, I think, you know, just as we were saying that in some sense, historically, different ages of the church need each other ethically. You might be able to say something even more complicated than that, that different ages of, of, of humankind need each other epistemologically. Mm. That is, if this ultimate elusive spiritual reality is sensible in a sense, but modelable, then it might be the case that we model it intellectually from generation to generation differently and true <laughs> that, um, that we, obviously this is not a sort of like, you know, it's not to say that everything that you think is true, but it might be that there are a huge semantic range, an infinite number of correct interpretations of a phenomenon, mm. which is not to say that everything is everything that you say is true, but in some sense, all of a sudden, you know, um, Christian truth breaks open and seems exciting because there are so many different ways to correctly model it. Yeah. 
Um, in that situation, we actually need our ancestors' models, even if the details aren't true, because of the power and the holistic synthesis of what they were gesturing at. And then we can begin to compare models. That's, that's at least Lewis's kind of conservative argument. Uh, I guess you could say the um, what he calls elsewhere, I think in Surprised by Joy, avoiding chronological snobbery. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Jason. And it's and it's also, I think, worth pointing out that that's, a disti- that's something that is a distinct virtue of the Christian faith as well. I mean, you, you see it in the way in which, I mean, this is kind of the principle of the incarnation in a way in which the church is able to take root in... Uh, societies, cultures, you know, through, throughout the world and um, not with specific food codes, not with specific dress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yes. that's a different, that's a different conversation. Um, so, yes. But I'd love to, I would love to move to an adjacent um, thing. Can so, I say one thing about yeah, yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, please. I, I, I jokingly say in my, in my Dante book in describing Paradiso that Dante's Paradiso Christian heaven is going to be more like Los Angeles than Lincoln, Nebraska. Precisely for that reason that you just mentioned, right? That in some sense, and, and, this is, and you could cast this in a very medieval way, right? Bonaventure does this with Francis. Um, but Francis is very close to being in Bonaventure's imagination, you know, a sort of, uh, well, he, he specifically calls him an Alter Christos, a second Christ, a sort of new incarnation who incarnates the you know, the gospel truth in, um, you know, in 1200s Assisi, but in this historically particular way, and no one saw this coming. I think sort of think of, as you're saying, the the incarnation principle, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That to a certain extent, I don't think you'd want to go, you know, too far in one direction or another, but to a certain extent, um, if I am following universal principles of Christianity, and I'm incarnating them in my life, it's going to be a unique historical experience. And that's going to be my own type of narrative of, of creation and recreation, which will parallel the very natural history of the world. So, Jason, what I just heard you say is that C.S. Lewis out Wendell buried Wendell Berry. And uh, <laughs> if I can sum that thought up. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I say come pretty much close to that in one of the chapters. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. it, not what I'm putting words in your mouth. But um, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. So r- recently, I mean, we're recording this. It's March 16th. We're what are we now kind of three weeks into this crazy situation in Ukraine? And, and I've been spending more time than I would usually frequenting news headlines. Um, so w- there's a bit in your book where you talk about the strong words that Lewis had for, you know, the habit of spending too much time on news headlines. Um, and it seems to me that he offered such scathing criticism because he thought it was symptomatic of, well, let's call it a slippage, uh, a slippage into a mindset where, quote, real world concerns, um, kind of the pressing tyranny of the urgent trumped the habits of attentiveness fostered by careful reflection and study. So here's here's kind of the spirit of my Wendell Berry question, right? What what did Lewis think that we modern people, those of us living in a in a hurried secular society might have to gain from the medieval worldview? 
I mean, I write about that in the chapter from Symphony to Machine, mm. the death of antiquity and the birth of the world of speed. And I think Lewis is imagining a, a situation like this. A year ago, well, to a certain extent, we still are. But a year ago, two years ago, even, we were scared out of our minds by COVID. And we were reading every headline. Um, I think it was, you know, one of the most profitable periods ever for, for marketing and for, for news outlets. Hmm. Because all of us were checking it every 15 minutes to see what was happening, to see what was canceling, to see what would happen, right? We were absolutely terrified. And it created a, just a sense of, I'm sure we can all, all, everyone can remember it, a sense of pulsating anxiety from minute to minute in which it was hard to think about anything else. It was hard to think about bathing the babies. It was hard to think about, you didn't want to see your friends because you didn't want to get infected by some you know, possibility of illness, right? Mm. It's what we thought about every minute. In the fullness of time, we're transitioning that in you know, March, 2022. In the fullness of time, those concerns will be less than they are now. But right now, I think there's a sort of equal anxiety about Ukraine. And there is a sphere of, you know, supply chains and, you know, whether or not you can get those little like chips for, you know, rear air conditioning for your Ford Explorer, which are made in Ukraine and a whole series of things and rising gas prices and rising grocery prices. So here we are again, we're in the middle of another crisis, aren't we? And we're glued to our screens and we're checking every 15 minutes. And it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to sit and pray because I'm worried about Ukraine and I'm worried about the economy and I'm worried about markets and I'm worried about supply chains. And it's hard for me to spend time with my kids because I'm worried about adult concerns, real concerns, real world concerns. I'm worried about elections. Well, guess what? Lewis thinks when this goes away, there will be another crisis. There'll be a crisis in 2024. And there'll be a crisis in 2025 and 2026. So I will spend the entirety of my life moving from worry to worry, to worry, to worry, anxiety, 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 anxiety. And my nervous system will always, you know, excrete adrenaline until I run out of it and just fry my nervous system. And guess what? I will have spent 40 years of my life without praying, without loving, without um, taking care of my neighbor, without developing virtues, because Lewis thought in the culture of speed, in the culture of what Sigmund Bauman calls liquid modernity, it's always a crisis. Lewis intuited that uh, in the 50s, um, one of, probably even earlier than that in the 40s when he began to see sort of World War II propaganda. Oh, wait a minute. We're never going to exit the propaganda time. We're never, gonna, we're never going to exit the conditions of urgency. Mm. It's just going to be something different. So how can the Middle Ages help people like us? I've made myself all nervous and anxious just talking about it. <laughs> we're, we're a neurotic, anxious people, right? Yeah, the yeah. danger of that is, this is not to say that we shouldn't, you know, justly attend to duties, sometimes with a sense of urgency and prudence, which come our way, of course, right? This is not dismissive of any of those concerns. But the fear is, is that I will constantly defer the deep work of my heart and the deep work of my friendship and the deep work of my love and the deep work of my presence and attentiveness to my children, to my wife, to my world, to my, to my meaningful deep work. I will always defer it because I'm nervous about something else. Mm. I think Lewis thought that, well, that's why Lewis sat around reading 
medieval spiritual treatises as his personal private daily devotions with pencil in hand. Because they had a kind of world which was still saturated in stillness. You know, you could breathe the atmosphere of, of, con- of contemplative silence. That's at least one reason why we need them. Jason, Lewis, of course, had much to say on the subject of education, which, as you make very clear, wasn't simply sort of filling up a, a cognitive reservoir. Help us to understand, according to Lewis, what does genuine education demand? Genuine education demands ennobling, empowering your students to respond with just sentiments to values in the world. That is such a strange thing to say that I had to (laughs) illustrate it at the end of that chapter. Um, And I illustrate it with an example from Dante, um, appropriate for Lewis, that in, in Inferno 1, Dante needs help. And some guy comes down the street and he begs him for help, but then he discovers who he is. He's Virgil. And Dante's sort of stunned response of awe and reverence and admiration, Virgil, Virgil himself, is what the, our, our, what the medieval, our medieval ancestors would have called piety. Mm. Maybe one of the virtues that's completely dropped out of uh, contemporary democratic American culture, right? Mm-hmm. The virtue of piety, a sense of being deeply moved in the presence without necessarily an inferiority complex, feeling that you're in the presence of one of your betters, right? Mm. Um, That's one of the sort of virtues that that happens in an educational system, right? To get to the level of piety. Or I use use, um, Thomas Traherne's meditation on the world that why why do we do science? Right? Why do we sort of try to build a cosmic image in our mind so that we get to the point of admiration and wonder, which spills over into a worshipful presencing of, of God? Um, that is what education looks like for our ancestors, that it has to get to that um, effective, qualitative aspect in which I don't just know something, but I see it as beautiful. And I don't just see it as beautiful, but want to the extent I can to, this is going to sound strange, to eat truth, to Mm -hmm. drink truth, such that to the extent it can, I guess it's biblical, right? Mm -hmm. Um, God tells Ezekiel to eat his scroll. And Ezekiel says, it was honey into my mouth, right? To eat truth, to meditate until it becomes part of your, the marrow of your bones. Then you have learned. That's Mm -hmm. a shocking contrast to what we think of learning is, right? I'm afraid to say we think of learning as enabling people to go to databases of knowledge and teach them how to navigate that information should they ever desire to do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my wife's favorite Lewis book is Till We Have Faces, which to my shame, I've still not read. Um, let lightning fall. <laughs> um, but Ooh, one but, can't read everything. But well, this is, this is true. Uh, and I did, the, the problem was, I started it on a plane. I fell in love with Psyche. I then lost my copy of the book and have just been too cheap to buy another copy. But Psyche, I, I mentioned- Loving Psyche is a pretty good place well, to get to. Well, yeah. I mentioned I mention it to say that she, the way that I described it to my wife was, this character inspires moral awe. That was the phrase that I used. Yes, um, that's good. And the so the connection you draw with piety is, um, is timely. I've also been recently reading uh, 
T.F. Torrance's The Trinitarian Faith, and he makes very clear early on in that book that Eusebia and Theologia, piety and the true knowledge of God, mm. belong together in this kind of um, uh, not quite cyclical way, but in a kind of upward spiral. Um, yeah, if you're not worshiping, you haven't seen. Right. Right. And so it's, yes, it's true. The Lord can use Balaam's ass, but you know, that seems to be an exception. <laughs> and he tends right. to, yeah. the true theologian is the one who, who knows him in, in, in worship and prayer, which brings me to the last question, quite simply, which has to do with Lewis's life of prayer. Um, as I mentioned to you before we started this uh, recording, I've been making my way through Andrew Luth's origins of Christian mystical theology. You've, of course, worked on uh, the Christian mystical tradition. And um, and when we, by the way, if listeners aren't familiar with this language, when we talk about the Christian mystical tradition, we're, we're talking about, in effect, the tradition of reflection on the life of prayer and the, and the contemplative knowledge of God. So just to demystify that, no pun intended. At any rate, to just expose us a little bit to Lewis's knowledge of God in prayer um, and where we can chart him here, if, if that's the right way of looking at it. There are these pretty stories about uh, um, in the, the Fioretti, the little flowers of St. Francis, of his followers who wanted to know what prayer was like. And so they would pretend to go to sleep and then tell Francis would sneak out of bed and start praying and they would sneak up on him. And um, one of his followers caught him saying, um, to God, who are you and who am I? Who are you and who am I? We're trying to establish this sort of deep, effective, you know, uh, connection. I wish we could do something similar like that with Lewis. I think the closest we get to that, and as I argue in chapter, is what he says in letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, as well as certain moments in which he describes um, Lucy who has a, uh, an Augustinian spiritual restlessness about her. The other children are content to be good and content to accomplish deeds and accomplish missions, right? And do things, you know, measurable, quantitative, right, uh, deeds. But Lucy is, Lucy wants, hungers for relationship. Lu Lucy hungers for an IU relationship, as, as one of uh, Lewis's favorite authors, Martin Buber, put it. And so I'm going to you know, cheat just a little bit. I'm going to read a very small section from my introduction to Christian mysticism, but I think this will make sense as we go back to Lewis. I say this, mysticism is founded on the belief that every soul is made with an infinite desire and that only an infinite bliss can satisfy. Mm -hmm. Mysticism believes that this infinite fountain for which our souls thirst is God, but God cannot be contained within the creation he made nor can he be comprehended fully within human language and rationality in which we represent that creation in our minds. Thus, mysticism is an ascent through rationality toward the edge of language. And when we have arrived at the periphery of language, we walk over the edge and fall into the darkness of unknowing, as Dionysus calls it, which is not ignorance, but a way of knowing that is higher and deeper than our customary rational consciousness." Abyss calls unto abyss as the abyss of divine love that calls out from the very depths of our own soul, from the very depths of our own souls, so that we thus turn inward 
we become immersed in the measureless ocean of divine majesty, the abyss of hidden light. Mm. The abyss of hidden light. Walking to the edge of the periphery of language and continuing to go over. The, our medieval ancestors thought that the human being was like an, a series of onions, layers of onions, and that on our outer onion layer was our sensations and a little bit closer in were our, as our imagination. And then further in was rationality. And as moderns, that's as far as we get toward the middle of the onion. But the medieval mystic is aware, believes that there's a core, which is higher than rationality and an ability to connect, to touch, to feel, to be in union with. And it's not entirely verbal and it's not entirely rational. It's not irrational. It's not contradictory. You can't, and you can't just skip to it. You have to pass through rationality to get there. But sometimes there are moments in which basically time slows, flattens, turns into a type of stillness. And in some of those moments, properly trained, the mystic begins, as, as medievals interpreted the psalm, abyss calls out to abyss, deep calls out unto deep, I think that's what Lewis was after in his prayer, in his secret prayer. But he was nervous that people would get so excited about that they would skip all the regular, ordinary Monday morning duties, mm -hmm. taking care of people and not flipping people off when you're caught in traffic and stuff like that, right? Because <laughs> um, you can't, you can't, for as I, you know, jokingly say that for our medieval ancestors, you can't be spiritual without being religious. Mm. You have, you have to be religious first, and then you can get spiritual. But that ultimately, that's why you'd want to be good in the first place, because that's the end goal. Mm -hmm. There's that lovely passage, isn't there, in uh, the Screwtape Letters, where, well, lovely is not the right word, um, frightening and, un and uncomfortable passage in the Screwtape Letters, where he talks about, you know, by all means take your young subject, get him fascinated with the type of prayer which those who are advanced in the enemy's service practice. That's um, right. And it strikes me that what you're talking about, there is a way in which people who are quite young in the faith are actually able to practice this safely. Um, and I think we would just call that life in the spirit. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the, the life of prayer. I mean, the life of life in the spirit. I think Jer Jeremy Begbie is... Uh, I, I have heard, has described it as um, the realm of non-order as opposed to disorder. The realm, um, not so much yeah. of logos or word, but of laughter. We can carry on our conversation after everyone else is finished with this podcast, but I think for time's sake, I ought to draw the line here. Um, Jason, thank you so much for joining me um, and, and sharing your thoughts on the great man, uh, C.S. Lewis. Thank you. I'm very grateful. I feel like in some way the conversation has been very, very nourishing to me. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks well, so much. Wonderful. Listeners, I uh, hope you guys have enjoyed this as well. Let me warmly commend Jason Baxter's book to you, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind, just out with Inner Varsity Academic. Uh, do um, look into it, grab a copy, and I hope you'll be able to spend some time with it. Uh, well, that's all for this um, episode of the Ridley Institute podcast. If there are topics, concerns, subjects you would like to hear dealt with, then please don't hesitate to reach out to podcast at ridleyinstitute.com. 
Uh, as always, please leave a stellar warm review uh, with five stars and many happy comments uh, wherever you may be listening to this podcast. We've got lots of um, wonderful talks coming up, including an interview with Jessica Hooten-Wilson and Oz Guinness. Uh, indeed, a, a new episode of the New Parker Society coming out on Thomas Cranmer soon. We'll be joined by a good friend from Sydney, Steve Tong. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this. My name is Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute Podcast.